lost. It's celebrating our Lord. And it's just a great synopsis of Jesus to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. And he goes even one step further in verse 6, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve His God and Father. To Him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. This, this is Advent. This is why we celebrate, and this is why we are here. And if you've been with us in recent weeks, you know, we've talked about a, a number of different topics. Most specifically, last week, we talked about legalism. How, how we need to be cautious when we listen to other people who are not from Christ and, and people who tell us what is most important, that it could lead to legalism and it could lead to putting things above Christ. And tonight, it actually is even more practical. Tonight, the passage we're going to read deals specifically with our actions and how obedience in Christ leads to actions that are useful and beneficial to the kingdom of God. So please join with me, if you will. Uh, We'll be reading from chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. uh, Jesus' letter to the church in Laodicea. Um, So starting in verse 14, and then again through 22. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke in discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. Stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, I've talked about this before in here, and it seems to me that the Christian life has three major sort of themes or phases. The first one is salvation, right? The first one is when we meet Jesus and we're saved and we think, yay, I'm forgiven, right? And then the third one is when we get to heaven. You know, the the theological word for it is glorification. When we get to heaven and we have eternity with God. Right? But but then in the middle, there's this sort of pesky thing called day-to-day life, which is waiting for heaven. You know, how do we get there? How do what do we do in the meantime? How do we do this right? I mean, to be honest, we all sort of try to be good. We try to do that which is good. Yet we live in a world of temptation, of suffering. You know, the, the AIDS care ministry we're talking about, you know, these are people ministering to kids whose parents have died of AIDS, or who, who maybe an eight-year-old who has AIDS because his, his or her mother had AIDS. This is a world of suffering and difficulty. You know, this middle part where, okay, we've been saved and we know Jesus, but now we're waiting for heaven is difficult. <laughs> and it's exactly what our passage, I think, deals with tonight. 
John writes these words down as he heard them from Jesus. And in verse 14, he just starts out with a phrase that says, hey, these are the words of the amen. These are the words of Jesus Christ, who is the beginning and the end. He is the authority. He is the ruler. He is the true witness of these things. Now, I wish you were hot or cold. I know your deeds, and I wish you were one or the other. We'll come back to this whole I know your deeds thing. But he says you are not hot and you are, or you are not cold. You're this lukewarm thing. You're in between. You're, it's bad. Now let me clarify. I think there's two things he could mean by this. One, I remember hearing this when I was a little bit younger. I once heard a pastor say that this passage is about, you know, being either on fire for Jesus or, or just making a decision against Jesus. That, that Jesus would almost rather have you be against him than to be this lukewarm Christian sitting on the fence, right? Than to be this lukewarm Christian sort of, well, I'm not really sure which team I'm on. And that God would almost rather have an enemy than a follower who's not fully committed. Now, while I understand that thinking a little bit, as I've lived life and as I've grown a little bit, it, it doesn't really make much sense to me. When I was younger, it made sense, and I thought, wow, I really need to be on fire for Jesus, otherwise he's going to spit me out of his mouth. But when I look at it, I look at verse 16, the next verse, and he says, but because you are neither, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. So, so what it's saying is, is that God or Jesus is seeing merit in both the hot and the cold. And so what, when I read this, I don't think Jesus is necessarily talking about being hot or cold as far as your faith or the strength of your faith. And many of you may have heard this before. I really truly believe that Jesus is talking about usefulness here. That our response to Jesus must be something that is useful to the kingdom of God. Because uh, things that are hot and hot water and hot drinks have a use and cold water and cold drinks have a use. But, but tepid, lukewarm water is sort of this in-between, this I don't really want it. Our response to God should be something good and useful. See, Jesus says, I know your deeds. I see what you do, and it's lukewarm. It's not benefiting the kingdom of God. It is not doing anything to promote the kingdom of God. You know, and in the ancient world, many of these cities, especially in Rome, they had these great Roman aqueducts we always hear about, you know, and they would come from these crisp, cool mountain springs. But in Turkey, it's pretty warm. And, and so by the time it gets to the city, this cool, crisp mountain spring was, was sort of this tepid water. You know, many cities sort of had this problem. I even read one book that talked about how Laodicea even had these two springs that they drew from. That there was this cold spring where they got their city water and drinking water from, but then there was also a hot spring they would go to for healing. But both of these springs, by the time they reached the city, whether through the aqueduct or natural creeks, was this lukewarm, tepid water that it wasn't beneficial, it wasn't useful. Hot water you go to for medicinal purposes, like a hot spring, you know, it's very nice. Probably shouldn't drink that water with all the sulfur and minerals, but it's very nice to sit in, it very, feels very good. And cold water in the same way is very useful. But by the time it gets to the city, it's lukewarm. And it, it kind of doesn't really serve a purpose. You know, whatever the terms... Jesus was using, I think they would have understand this analogy for what the point he's trying to make is, and it's this. That God desires his servants to do that which is useful to the kingdom of God. 
You know, not to be uh, this thing that he sees when he examines your deeds and examines your life, and it's something that he would spit out of his mouth. You know, and many of us don't like this analogy because it doesn't seem fair. Well, Jesus loves me. Okay, I may mess up. I, I'm not perfect, but why would Jesus spit me out of my mouth or spit me out of his mouth? You know, we know that Jesus loves us and that he has grace on us and he's forgiven us our sins. But there's this really important theme that runs throughout all of Scripture called the Day of the Lord. And it's not a popular topic, but it's one, I think, that is addressed, that we need to address. It even is in the Nicene Creed, the the one that we sort of hold to as, as unity for all the things we believe, and it's that God will return. That Jesus will return, and it will be to judge See, the the reason we look forward to the coming of Jesus in Advent is not because we want a little baby. That already happened. And and that baby grew to be a, a righteous man of God who gave his very life for our sins in humility. But Scripture is also very clear, and I've mentioned this many times before, that when Jesus does return a second time, we're going to know. It's not going to be meek and mild and in a backwoods town. As many of you know, in Matthew 25, it says that he is going to return with all of his angels on his throne as the king. So why is God threatening to judge Laodicea? Why why is Jesus using these harsh words? You know, if you read the other six letters to the churches in in Revelation 1 and 2, he, he always has something really positive to say, except to Laodicea. The other churches, he says, hey, you're doing good, keep it up. You've just, you're messing up a little bit here. He just gets right into it. And this is why. Look at verse 17. And this is where we see the passage begin to intersect with our life here and now. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. But what you don't realize, Jesus says to them, what you don't realize is that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. How often do we try to to hold up our accomplishments in front of God and say, well, I I know I'm not, but look at all the, I've tried really hard. I I mean, I work, I have this great job, I have this great this, I have, I, I, I. When Laodicea became wealthy. And when this church, it it was a very wealthy area. If you look historically, they had this great textile and cloth trade. They had this great sort of this medical salve thing they would make there. And they had all of these different things. And it was at a a very pivotal point in, in this empire. And it was a very wealthy city. And the Christians there, the church there, had come to know Jesus. But in this road of life, they had gotten to this point where they began to rely on their resources. They began to rely on what they could produce rather than what God could do through them. And their response when Jesus said, well, look at at all we have. I'm rich. I mean, we've done everything. Look, we we have a church building. You know, we have this. we We have a nice band. We have nice instruments. We have everything we could possibly need. What do you mean? You spit me out of your mouth. And Jesus says, you are wretched, pitiful, poor, and blind. The exact opposites of everything they're claiming. (laughs) And then, Jesus actually gets a little sarcastic. I don't know if you guys knew this, but Jesus and God, and and a lot of the writing of Scripture, there's a lot of sarcasm and sort of things that are just very contradictory and they almost make you want to laugh. 
So, so here they say, you, you think you are rich. You think you have it all figured out. And he says in verse 18, basically, he says, I'm going to give you a tip. He says, you think you're rich and you know what's going on. Let, let me give you a little tip. I counsel you. You want to be rich? You, you want to have it together? Buy the stuff I give you. You want a financial tip? You want to know what's going to have lasting impact? Things that are going to be useful in the kingdom of God? Buy from me gold refined in the fire so then you can become rich. White clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. You think you have it figured out, but you don't. You say you are rich. Well, here's a great investment opportunity. Invest in that which I give you. Use your wealth to buy the things that matter. Open your eyes to see the things in the world that matter most. He says to the wealthy people in Laodicea, buy from me. I am the only one who can give you that which matters. And what's amazing about this is God is not just sort of telling them what's most important. He's taking their strengths and showing them that even the things they're best at are not good enough. You, you think you have this great textile industry and this famous cloth industry and you're running this part of the world and all of these things. No, you're naked. As I mentioned, they had this medical salve they made there and, and, and these ancient scholars are talking about it and they think, hey, we're, we're great at seeing and helping people see and heal their eyes. And God says, no, you're blind. You don't get it. Even the things you're best at, you're failing at. And in fact, the things that oftentimes we are best at are the things that lead us further away from God because we rely on ourselves and our own abilities. And then verse 18, after sort of cutting them down and saying, listen, you need to understand what's most important, he gives us verse 19, which is just so beautiful. Those whom I love. Notice he starts with love. I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest or be zealous and repent. So good. And he keeps going and he keeps being, he, after sort of showing them that he, they, they need Jesus, he then builds them back up in verse 20 and says this. Go to 20. There it is. Here I am. He said, listen, you're shameful, you're naked, you're blind, but let me just tell you something. I'm right here. I am not far You don't have to earn anything. You just have to come to me. I stand at the door and I'm knocking. I'm doing everything. You need to come. You need to hear. And you need to open the door. And then I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Because to him who overcomes, they will have victory. How amazing is it? Now go back to the beginning. I know your deeds. God knows you. And not only does he know you, he knows the deepest, darkest junk inside of you. And yet he still knocks. And he's still at the door knocking. And to the most evil person in this world, look at the news and think of whatever uh, abusive male or world ruler or whatever it is. The horrible things we read in the news, the worst person you can think of. Jesus knows their deeds, and yet he still knocks at their door, hoping that they would open it. How amazing is our God? And he doesn't just want to knock to rebuke them, but he says he wants to to discipline them so that they would grow, so that they can repent, so that they could have fellowship with God. He could break bread with them. 
And if so, then we will be victorious, he says. See, life is, as I mentioned, the three parts of the Christian life. Salvation's good and easy. I love Jesus. Jesus loves me. Step three is awesome. I get to be with Jesus forever. Great. What do we do in the meantime? He says, whoever has ears, let him hear. So the three big things I just want you to remember this evening is this. The first is that this passage, I really believe, is about usefulness as a response to grace. We cannot earn grace, but in the sight of the grace of Jesus Christ, we show effort to help and advance the kingdom of God. That, that is what we spend our effort on. That is what we spend our wealth on. That is what we spend our resources on to promote and build and share the kingdom of God. Because God does not require perfection. You know, think of a person who's far from perfect, but they're always around to help. And when you're bogged down and you need someone, they're still there. This is the sort of attitude God is looking for. He's looking for people who are willing, willing to put effort and learn and contribute. And in the same way, the second thing we need to remember is that God disciplines those he loves. And I know it's not popular, and I know we want Jesus just to be our best friend, and there'd be nothing bad that ever happens. I know people who, because of this, have said that they don't believe in Christianity, because when they came to Jesus, when that step one happened, when they met Jesus for the first time, they thought life would be easy, and they would just sort of roll through to point three. That life would just get easy and that they're a Christian now and all the stuff from their life is going to go away and they'll get to heaven and eternity. And then when life got hard and when they made foolish choices and there was, there was responsibilities and there was you know, reactions to those choices, they said, no, I don't want that. I wasn't told that was going to happen. So let me tell you, the Christian life is not easy. We are responsible to our actions. Because God disciplines those he loves, and he loves you so dearly. And let me just say that people today are afraid of discipline because they've been given poor examples of discipline, haven't they? We, we have seen earthly men and women do things that are horrible, that are manipulative, that are violent. But, but all science and psychology agrees that discipline is good. Ask any parent, how, how great is a four-year-old who's never been disciplined? You know, no, your child cannot play with my child because they're a monster. You know, discipline is essential for human development, yet somehow in our mind we think at some point in our 20s and our 30s and our 40s, we think, well, we don't need it anymore. We've achieved some plane of, of relevance or some plane of clairvoyant thinking. Why should we stop trying to grow? Why do we run from discipline? Christ says that rebuke and discipline train us and equip us to live life well. And he says, so if you see the rebuke and you see the discipline, then be earnest and be honest with God and repent about what it is you need to repent about. Do not hide from God's correction because God is desiring to train you. God wants to build you up so that you are doing great things for his kingdom. Please, and if this is hard, uh, let me just say this uh, from a sense of, of gentleness. Don't let a poor earthly example of discipline affect how you view God. Let me say that again. Do not let a poor earthly example of discipline affect how you see God. This was one of the hardest things I had to get over in my life. You know, you can ask people close to me. The only time I ever yell is when I'm excited. 
I will never yell when I'm really angry because that was my life growing up. My discipline growing up was being yelled at. And I remember reading this and thinking, well, I'm not really a big fan of God if he wants to discipline me. But as I've learned, as I've grown, I've realized that God's discipline is love. It's caring. It's bringing out the best in me. It's not arrogant. It's not authoritarian. And so if your view of discipline is something that is earthly or something that is evil or something that is painful, I encourage you to pray about that. I encourage you to to share that with someone. I encourage you to trust Jesus and trust God to see what his discipline is like. It is loving and it is gracious. And it leads us to a place that does great things for the kingdom. And the last thing I want you to hear is this, is that he is standing at the door. He knows our deeds and he's still waiting for us. You know, today we have much in common with the church in Laodicea. We have wealth, we have resources. (laughs) You know, the city was actually so wealthy. I actually just thought of this. It's not a perfect correlation, but you know, recently there was that big mudslide in Grabunden. And people, all these Swiss people just gave millions and millions and millions of francs to help this city. You know, we have resources here. You know, a similar thing actually happened in, in, in 60 AD. There was a big earthquake that destroyed Laodicea. And it says in the historical record, they were so wealthy, they didn't even want Roman help. They said, nope, we're fine. We'll do it ourselves. We don't want your help. We don't want to owe you anything. We're good. We can do everything on our own. And now that's great from a fiscal responsibility standpoint. But they had this mentality, why do I need God? Look at all of I have. They had their famous stuff, they had their wealth, they had their resources. And many people were blind. You know, in my experience, in in 10 years of youth ministry in the United States, and, and living here the last year, year plus, it's hard to tell people they need Jesus because they have everything. Well, what? Why do I need Jesus? So wait, so wait, you want me to become a Christian so that I can no longer do all the things I like to do and then I also have to give my money to this church? No. But what people don't realize is they think they can see, but they're blind. They think they're wearing these garments of beautiful linen and yet Jesus says they're shamefully naked. When we as Christians go out into this world, Jesus wants to look at our deeds and see things that people invite and welcome and desire. The same way a hot or a cold beverage can both be equally appealing. They want us, Jesus wants to see your actions and see your efforts and see your life and have it be something that the world desires and says, what is it about that person? I want that. What is it that she has, that he has, that I've never seen before? So in the same way Jesus said to Laodicea, let me say to you, buy from Jesus that which is eternal. You are the light of the world. Remember when Jesus said that? You are the light of the world. And so when you hear rebuke, accept it. Even welcome it. So that it would lead to earnestness and zealousness and repent. Another word for repent is just change. It leads to change. And how many times do we see things in our life we just want to change and we just wish we're different, but we just don't know how? It's telling us right here. Hear God's rebuke, accept his discipline, be earnest and honest, and then change. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. We were talking about John the Baptist in the reading of uh, the, 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 the Advent reading. 
this guy went around, and, and we have a couple of short little sermons from him in Scripture. One of them, he goes out, and Doug was talking about it this morning, he starts his sermon by calling people a brood of vipers. And then another one of his sermons, he starts by just saying, repent. I mean, how many people do you think would be here if I started every sermon just by yelling at you people to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand? I mean, first week it'd be a little interesting. Second week, okay, Sam, move on. Third or fourth week, it's just, you know, me and the beamer, you know? (laughs) But this is what Jesus is calling us to. He says, repent. And repent just means change. Repent means trust God that he has more for you. Trust God that he has kingdom work for you to do. And I'm going to challenge you now as a church. You have three weeks of Advent left before Christmas. Take stock. Take stock of your life. Look at, at who you are and what you do. Have you welcomed the light of the world into your life? Have you allowed Jesus to be the light of your life and therefore to shine out on all you do? That all of your actions are useful and beneficial to the kingdom of God? I know mine aren't. And this is my desire. Because we're not lacking. We have all the resources we need. We have all the things we could ever want. And yet, despite our wickedness and despite our sin, God sees it, he knows it, and he is still at the door knocking. Take this Advent season to examine, to to pray, to think, how can you do more kingdom work? How can you do more for God that is useful to the kingdom and that promotes his gospel and promotes his love and his goodness? It may require some discipline. It may require some confession. It may require some prayer. And that's okay. Because after the prayer and after the confession and after a little bit of discipline, you know who's still going to be there? God. He's still going to be there knocking. And he's going to say, let's go. So my prayer and hope for you is that we take this Advent season to do just that. Open the door. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Lord, thank you for the resources we have. Thank you for a warm room on a cold night. Thank you for homes, jobs, food on our tables, money in our bank accounts. Lord, these are all blessings from you. Lord, let these things not be blocks to you, but things we use for you, with you. Lord, we are your church and we are the light of the world. May your light shine through us. May our actions be that which glorifies you and your kingdom which is at hand. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite the band back up.